Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word, like a newborn baby, that you may grow thereby. His divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Before we open God's word this morning, let's bow our heads together and ask God's guidance on our teaching and learning today. Father, we're so thankful that we, we have your word. And throughout your word, there are so many times that we are reminded that it is your word that is uh, the basis for enlightening our minds to reality, to realities you created it. Uh, reality is it has been corrupted by sin. Uh, reality that is uh, defined by your word and is explained by your word on how we ought to live in conformity to your word that we might be able to enjoy stability and tranquility and contentment no matter what happens in this ever-changing, ever-more-corrupt world in which we live. Father, we pray that as we study today, we can come to understand more fully what you have taught about this, especially in the realm of the corruption of a culture. We all live, no matter who we are, as believers or unbelievers, we have lived since the fall of Adam in a corrupt culture. And the only way to uh, deal with that is to be transformed by the renewing of our minds according to Scripture. So we pray that you would help us to understand these things. In Christ's name, amen. All right, we are continuing a study in Ephesians. We have been in Ephesians for about three years. We are, I think this is the 156th lesson. And one of the reasons that we have taken so much time is because this epistle is filled with such rich information, and yet it is written in a way that is not always easily accessible to us because of a lack of background in scriptural knowledge, because of the ways that many of these passages have been historically either mistranslated or misinterpreted. And so often when we read certain verses, we just basically put them in a met, um, mental file because we really don't understand what this is talking about. And then we've heard others who have taught about it, and they have gone in directions that just uh, we, we just don't think is right. But then on the other hand, we don't know exactly why or what the background is on some of these things. And so it's important to take our time. And then on the other hand, what we have seen as, as sort of the core bedrock of this, this whole epistle 
is what Paul is teaching about the significance of this new entity that came into existence on the day of Pentecost, described in Acts chapter 2, and is identified as the church that, that prior to A.D. 33, prior to the day of Pentecost, there was no such entity as the church. And God was doing something completely new. And, and part of this that, that Paul emphasizes is that in the Old Testament time, God was working primarily through the Jewish people. But now there was this new entity that he was calling out called the church that was to be comprised of Jew and Gentile who were now equal in the body of Christ. And that this entity, the church, that corporate group has been appointed to a task, to a mission, and that we have been given um, four different metaphors to try to help us understand what this entity is, that it is a called a new man in Ephesians chapter 2. It's called a new building. It is called a, a new temple. It's called a new body. All of these have different, these metaphors have different aspects that are foundational for us. And once Paul has, de- has explained this in detail in chapter 2 and chapter 3, then we came to chapter 4 where he says, I therefore. The therefore is to tell us that it's a conclusion from what he has said in chapters 2 and 3. Now, what that means is that it's fundamental to think in terms of this corporate entity of the church when we think in terms of the commands for the Christian way of life in chapters 4 and 5. That may reshape some of our understanding and what is going on in these chapters. And we will deal with that. But I just want, we have to keep this context uh, in mind here. And then in the first part of chapter 4, Paul then talks about, starting in verse 7, how Christ is working to prepare, equip, and mature this body of believers, this church, this new entity. Of course, that involves the individuals within it, but the, the framework is corporate. The framework is who we are in Christ and what Christ is doing to equip and train and prepare and mature this new entity, this new body viewed as a corporate whole. It's not at the expense of the individuals because as we saw when we came to the end of that that section uh, Paul says in verse 16 for, uh, talking about the individuals from whom the whole body uh, that is Christ from whom from Christ the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies So he's been talking about the whole corporate body, but it's composed of individuals, which are represented by this phrase, every joint that supplies according to the effective working by which every part, that is every individual within the corporate entity of the body of Christ, uh, does its share. And that is part of how God 
produces spiritual growth in the body for the edification of itself in love. That whole section, which we spent about six months studying, and I keep summarizing it for us in verse, from verses um, uh, 7 down through 16, then becomes the, the, the stepping stone to the next verse, which we started about three lessons back. This I say, therefore. Now, as we get into what he is saying here, I want you to again note that it begins with a therefore. That therefore is a conclusion that is related to what we just studied, related to Christ equipping, preparing, maturing the body of Christ and the role of each individual part within the function of that body. And so he started off saying, walk worthy of that high calling with which you were called. Then he takes a break in 7 to 14 to talk about how he is, how Christ is preparing and equipping, maturing that body. Now he's going to come back and tie that back to the main point that he started with in verse 1, to walk worthy. And we, we need to understand this. And here he's going to contrast that worthy walk with how the rest of the Gentiles walk. And part of this is going to deal with the, the sinfulness and the depravity of the culture around them, which is not a whole lot different from the culture around us. What's going to happen if we get there this morning, which I hope we will, because this, it, we have to build these steps. If you, if you forget the steps, then you're going to just jump in and, and lose sight of the significance of the, of the conclusion. Uh, he's going to get down to the last phrase in verse 18, which is the blindness of the heart. And we have to ask the question, does this refer to spiritual blindness? If so, what is that? Or does it refer to callousness or hardness? And there's a different, it's not even a textual problem. It's a, there's two different ways in which this word is understood, and that has shaped some troublesome theology, shall we say. So we have to look at some, some details. So he begins with this statement, I say therefore, and um, as a conclusion related to what he has said before, that he's tying this command to walk a certain way uh, in his command to, the, to his audience. He says, you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk as the, uh, in the futility of their mind. We got that far the last time. Having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness or the hardness of their heart. And you'll have, some of you have a translation one way, some have a translation the other way. Who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness, but you have not not so learned Christ. So we've looked at this and we see that this description of the futility of their thinking ends up with this phrase, the blindness of their heart. And so we need to, I want to review you on what we have focused on, especially last week. 
And his command is that you should no longer walk as the Gentiles or the rest of the Gentiles walk. We have to understand that this phrase walk is a metaphor. He's not talking about literal uh, literal walking. He is using this as a picture of how we live our life, how you conduct your life, how you think, how you plan, how you uh, structure the priorities in your life, and how you uh, uh, live out your beliefs. And he contrasts what they are now with what they were before. Before they were saved, they weren't living or operating or thinking any differently from the pagans around them. And they, like all of us, picked up their values, picked up their rationales, picked up their uh, morality or lack of it from the culture around them. And Paul is saying there's something different now because you have, we have been made alive together with Christ. We have been raised with him and we have been seated together with him in the heavenlies. That's back in Ephesians 2, 5, 6, and 7. Because of that reality, we are not to live the same way as the Gentiles around us. We're not to think the same way. We don't have the same value system. We have a completely new identity uh, now that we are uh, now that we are in Christ. And so he then is going to remind them of the way they were before they were saved. And that's what we see in 4.18 and 4.19. It expands on that last phrase we looked at last week in the futility of their mind and describes the nature of the thought life and the lifestyle of those uh, Gentiles in the culture around them, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because, and actually the having, the I-N-G word having, and the being, I-N-G word, those are both causal participles in the, in the uh, Greek, so it's because they, their understanding was darkened, and how, how did they get this futile or useless way of thinking? Because their understanding was darkened, because they were alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of the heart. Who being fa- past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. So the point of this is they should not walk like the Gentiles walk. And that takes us back to those introductory verses in verses 1 through 3 that we are to conduct our life in a manner worthy of the exalted position that new identity in Christ to which you were called to which you were uh, you were summoned so he gives this new command and that word walk is used twice here it's that you and I should not live our lives, conduct our lives like the Gentiles, uh, the rest of the Gentiles around us. And he says, uh, so he uses walk, you should no longer walk like the Gentiles walk. It's that second walk that he's going to describe. How do the Gentiles walk? How do they live? Now, I covered three things that are important here because We have to recognize that it starts with how we think, how you live, how you choose, how you 
uh, operate your life, how you establish your priorities, how you spend your time is determined by what goes on between your ears, the, the values you have and the priorities you have. So we see that the believer should and ought to think differently than those around us. Uh, it's not just what we think about, but how we think. Now that always gets difficult because it's hard enough to, to think, and it's more difficult to think about how we think, the structure of our thinking. And it really becomes clear that this is a cultural thing when you do a deep dive into language and language structure, that if you are around somebody as I am who is bilingual and bicultural, then you begin to learn that if you are in a speak another language, let's for ex, for example, if you grow up in an Asian culture, and you are speaking Chinese or Japanese or another Asian language, then that, because of words they have, words they don't have, expresses a certain worldview just in the structure of the language. And that is related to culture. This gets into some very complicated and complex issues. But language, no language is perfect, and every language is tied to the cultural uh, framework, the worldview of the, of the culture that speaks that language. So there's a deep, deep connection there. So language shapes how we think. If you don't have words for certain things, you can't think about those things. That's one of the things that's uh, notable in uh, when you work in cultures that have not been impacted by the Bible, that you realize that English has a rich, rich theological vocabulary, and all of our language is shaped by the Bible. There's so many idioms and metaphors in English that come out of the Bible. And whether we even have a biblical worldview anymore or not, and many people do not, they still have a lot of these phrases. They have a lot of this language that that is Bible-dependent. It's very interesting how these things all interact. But the important thing here is we have to learn how to think uh, biblically. And that starts with, a, with our authority. I looked at this last, last time that our authority is different as, script, as, as believers because we go to Scripture for our authority and not to the culture or not to our friends or not to some other philosophy or our religion. Psalm 36, 9 says, For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light we see light. So the authority starting point is different. The content of our thinking is different. Philippians 4, 8, and 9, we're going to think about certain things and not think about other things. And then it involves the renovation or the overhaul of our thinking, and this is what we've seen in Romans 12, 2. And as I have retranslated this, do not be pressed into the mold of the thinking of the world, that is the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, the world around you, but be transformed by the renewing or the renovation of your mind, of your thinking. Now, that's the Greek word nous, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, I went there because of the word that's used there. It's the renewing of our mind. Now, that takes us back to this passage that we're in in Ephesians 4.17. 
and 18, that we are not to walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. So we have a statement in verse uh, in Romans 12:2 that we're to renew our mind, and in Ephesians 4:17 it tells us why. It's because of the emptiness, the futility of our thinking as an unbeliever without an ultimate reference point to the absolute truth of Scripture. Now, the next verse is going to expand on that, but before we get there, I want to say a couple of other things that we covered last week. The result of what the believer does, our overt lifestyle, is a result of what goes on inside. This is one of the reasons Jesus condemned the, the Pharisees. He said, you clean the outside of the cup, but you leave the inside of the cup dirty. What he meant was your your inner spiritual life is not any different from anybody else. You just clean things up on the outside. And that's what a lot of Christians do. It's just superficial, and it is legalistic. We are to uh, think differently and live differently because everything we think and do should be oriented towards the glory of God. So we come to this last phrase of verse 17 to pull us into the next verse that Paul says that we should not conduct our lives as the rest of the Gentiles conduct their lives. That's the meaning of walk. Now, it's that second walk here as a main verb that is the reference point for the participles in the next verse. That's just basic grammar. Participles either function as nouns or they function as adverbs. And most of them and all of them here function as adverbs, which means they modify a verb. You've got to find the verb, otherwise you don't know what they're talking about. And the verb is this one. That's, that's your finite verb. And so it is talking about the futility of this walk That is what is further described in verse 18. Now, I talked about this because the word in English of futile has the idea of something that serves no useful purpose or is completely ineffective. The Greek word means, can mean futility. It can mean absurdity. It can mean purposelessness. It has the the other ideas, such as uh, some have said this is like a vacuum in the soul and sucks in other things. I pointed out last time that just because a word can mean something doesn't mean it means it in this context. And it is true that when we're operating on human viewpoint, we have a vacuum in the soul that sucks in false teaching. But that's not what he's talking about here. It's also true that it's that pagan thinking is absurd. I lean towards that. But I can't choose that as a meaning because it's not what he's saying in the context. And so I pointed out in a couple of other verses where this word is used that it has this idea of something that is meaningless, purposeless, or empty. It's not achieving the purpose for which God created it. And that fits what he is saying in this verse, the futility of the mind is because it no longer is oriented to God's purpose for man and is no longer fulfilling the God's intent and purpose for, for, 
for human thought. And so it, it, is, uh, it reflects the main idea that you find in the Old Testament where this word is uh, used in translating uh, into the Septuagint, the Greek translation that was done in the, uh, around 200, 300 B.C., and it, there it always has the idea of vanity or purposelessness, and a few places absurdity would work, and worthlessness. So that's what it's talking about. Our, our thinking, as the Gentile world around us, has a purposeless, meaningless way of thinking. The details may be good in some areas. They can think great thoughts. They can get us to the moon and back. Uh, they could create um, incredible uh, things, inventions, all kinds of things. But that doesn't mean that they understand reality. And that's what starts with God, is that understanding of reality. When we look at the way the sin nature operates in verses 18 and 19. It reminds us by the vocabulary of Romans 1, 20 to 23. Now, this is important because this introduces a word that is used in Ephesians, and that is the, the, uh, the word darkened or darkness at the beginning of verse 18. So I want to go here briefly, and then we'll go back to Ephesians 4. For since the creation of the world, his, that is, God's invisible attributes, are clearly seen. Notice that juxtaposition. They're invisible, but everybody sees them. They're understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, see, it starts off, every unbeliever knows God exists. It's been made evident to them and within them, externally and internally. That is a, an unavoidable interpretation of this passage, and I don't think anybody disagrees with that. But the implication is that when you're, even when you're talking to an atheist, they're not really an atheist because deep in the cellar of their mind, they've got God stuck in a subcellar, and they don't want to let him out. But they know, and that's why they get so mad sometimes. When Christians do certain things, they just go ballistic now because what happens is that God is using something to... to bring that awareness of God's existence to their mind, and they're trying to suppress it in unrighteousness. That's where the verse goes. They become, even though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile. There's our word again. They, be, they, they lost the meaning and purpose God created them for. Uh, they became futile in their thoughts. doesn't say they couldn't think. It's that their thinking becomes disoriented, and therefore they lose that purpose. And their foolish hearts, that word heart is used in parallel to thinking. The heart isn't the seat of emotions in the Bible. It's the seat of your thinking. Their foolish hearts are darkened, scotizo. That's the key word that ties several passages together. So when we, I pointed this out last time, what we have to do is understand who we are as human beings. 
You want to know real psychology? Don't study Freud and Maslow and Jung. Don't go to some secular university and get your mind all screwed up. Start with the Bible because the Bible treats you as someone who's created in the image and likeness of God, that God designed your immaterial soul. Uh, God designed you to be a reflection of who he is. And if you don't start there, then you will never understand human behavior. And if you don't start with the, the effects of sin on the soul, then you're never going to get anywhere. And you're never going to un- really understand your spouse, and you're never going to figure out why you have problems in your marriage if you don't understand a sin nature. When I do premarital counseling, one of the things I, I ask questions about is, do you understand your uh, intended sin nature? Because if you can't live in a compatible way with your spouse when they're out of fellowship and they can't live with you when you're out of fellowship because your sin natures aren't compatible, then you're going to have real problems. And most people never think about it that way. But when you're out of fellowship, when you get angry, how do you express your angry? When you get frustrated or you get in an argument, how do you express that when you're really self-absorbed and, and it's just all about you? How do you express your? Can your spouse live with you like that? And if they can't, well, maybe you're going to have some real serious problems in your marriage because every couple, every believer gets out of fellowship for a while and every believer gets out of fellowship and gets upset with their spouse. You have to understand human behavior. It has nothing to do with anything that's come out of what is called psychology since the mid-1800s. It has everything to do with understanding the Bible and the sin nature and God's what what Christ has done in providing forgiveness uh, for us. So that, that what we're told here is that fallen man, his hearts are darkened. Professing to be wise, they become fools, and then they worship the creature rather than the creator. Now, the other word that's in here, the, the hearts are darkened, the word for uh, thoughts is the Greek word uh, dialogismos. We're going to see a... F- synonym of that show up in Ephesians 4.17. Their thinking, how they think and what they think gets distorted, gets darkened. Okay, let's go back to Ephesians 4.17, the futility of their mind. That's the word noose. So this gets retranslated in the purposelessness of their thinking. Now, that doesn't mean that you go out and you find somebody who's an unbeliever that they have no purpose in life. They have a purpose in life, but they don't have God's purpose for their life. They don't understand they're created to glorify God and that God is the one who's gifted them and enabled them and given them the brains that they have or whatever, and that they are to use that for the glory of God and develop it for the glory of God so they're, they're out of kilter with God's plan for their life. And so their thinking is distorted because of that. And then we get into these participles and explaining that, and they all relate back to that word um, and to walk not as the Gentiles walk. In other words, don't conduct yourselves as the Gentiles conduct yourselves. And now he's going to describe how they conduct themselves. So this gives us a great picture in biblical psychology. How and why do we think and why? how and why do we do a lot of the things that we do? 
And a lot of that just relates back to we're still thinking and living like unsaved Gentiles. We haven't had our thought processes sanctified yet. And so the first thing he says is that the understanding is darkened. Now, this is another form of the same word. Earlier we in Romans 1, we saw skotizo. This is skotao. They both have the same idea of something that is darkened. But I want you to notice here that in, um, in the, for example, in this one dictionary, the New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology, they show that it has the sense of being darkened and also the sense of being blind. Scotizo, what we saw in Romans, has the sense of becoming darkened. So it, what is darkened here? What is darkened here is going to be our understanding. Now, one of the other aspects of this that we ought to see is there's a spiritual dimension to this in terms of uh, the angelic revolt. In Ephesians 6.2, we read that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. There's the str- That's true. We have a struggle with our sin nature, but there's also a struggle with the world forces of this darkness. So darkness relates in this sense to the evil production of that which comes out of the fall of Satan through the fallen angels. So what's the solution? What is the solution to darkness? This is where we're getting into one of the theological distortions that comes out of the Middle Ages and was repeated and held on to in the uh, the Protestant Reformation. And this is the uh, has to do with man's understanding, man's basic nature, is man irretrievably entrenched in darkness, or is there still an aspect of life that can the unbeliever have positive volition toward God, or must we go with the deterministic framework that comes out of Augustinianism and later Calvinism? This will necessarily entail a couple of lessons. This is not simple material, but it's important for us to understand it. When Paul goes to, or at the end of Acts, when he is uh, speaking uh, in Acts chapter 26 before uh, the authorities giving giving his testimony, he is going to make... Uh, a, a couple of really important statements here in Acts 26, uh, verses uh, 17 and 18. He's talking to uh, King Agrippa, and he is talking about his conversion. And when he gets down to verse 17, the one he is quoting here is the Lord Jesus Christ. When the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus, uh, he, he, Paul is blinded by this, what? Light. Light shining in the darkness of his soul. And he, so he says, who are you, Lord? And the Lord replied, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. Now, look at what the Lord's going to do through 
Saul. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. What's the purpose for the sending? To open their eyes. Wait a minute. If you listen to the explanations in Calvinism as to the effects of total of sin, which they call total inability, then God is the one who has to open their eyes and to regenerate them and to give them faith before they can be saved. But what Jesus is saying to Paul is that you are going to open their eyes. How is Paul going to open their eyes? By preaching the gospel. It is the gospel that's going to open people's eyes. It's the preaching of God and teaching of God's word that God uses to open their eyes. Okay, he, you are, I'm going to send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now, you may be saying, well, I, I, I've heard this other view, uh, this Calvinistic view, how, that, that how can a dead man believe? Well, what does it mean to be dead? It means to be alienated from the life of, uh, of God. It doesn't mean you can't uh, hear and you can't see and you can't think. It's just that, that that's been somewhat distorted, but you can look to Christ. Jesus is talking about the future resurrection of dead people, and he says when he comes back, the dead will hear. Wait a minute. I thought, I thought under the Calvinist argument, dead people can't hear. But Jesus said that the dead will hear when he comes back, and they will rise from the dead. So we have to, and we'll go through these passages in the next week or so. So that's what he said, what, what Jesus said to Paul, that he's going to open their eyes. And what he does, it, does uses is the scripture. So now we come to further develop this, that their understanding is darkened. And we have a similar phrase related to the mind uh, here, which is the word dianoia, in, which is located down here in the lower left box. Their understanding, that is their mind, their thought, their intentions are, are darkened. And in the parallel in Colossians one twenty one and 22, we're told, And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind, describing their unsaved condition, they were alienated from the life of God. We see that in Ephesians 4. And enemies in your thinking by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled you. So that helps illuminate the meaning of uh, Dianoia. So what's the fundamental problem that we have? Gentiles are walking. They're conducting their lives in the futility or emptiness or purposelessness of their thinking. Why? Why is their thinking empty, purposeless? Because their understanding is darkened. How did their understanding get darkened? Why is it darkened? It's darkened because they are alienated from the life of God. Why are they alienated from the life of God? Because of the ignorance that is within them. Well, why do they have this ignorance within them? 
It's because of the blindness of their heart. That's how it's translated in a number of translations. But other translations will translate it as hardness of their heart. So we have to do a drill down, which we're not going to do this morning, with this word porosis. In some passages, it's translated blindness. In some, it's translated hardness. The bottom line that we're going to get to next time is that it's really hardness. And that is, uh, uh, there's a lot of support for that. It's not a textual problem. It's just the way a word is used. And in classical Greek, it, there are several cases where it was used for blindness. But in Koine Greek, it's used for a hardness, a callousness, so that if you had calluses on your, on your eyes, you would have your vision darkened and you would be blind. But a primary meaning is the idea of something that forms calluses or something that is hardened, and that has a volitional element. And so we have to talk about this, this blindness because it's translated that way in a couple of translations. That's led to certain theological uh, positions. And so we have to uh, recognize this. And I'm going to conclude with this quote. This is from Charles Hodge, considered the foremost, uh, one of the foremost theologians in the mid-19th century. And in his three-volume work on systematic theology, he says, and this lack of power or want of power of spiritual discernment arises from the corruption of our whole nature by which the reason or understanding is blinded and the taste and feelings are perverted. What he means by blindness is that God has to basically regenerate you first before you can have faith and then be saved. And so regeneration and faith, I mean, regeneration precedes faith, and the, the opening of the eyes is an act of God that is described as irresistible or efficacious grace. So this is just sort of set up the problem. Next time we'll talk about this problem and we're going to look at some critical verses. For example, in 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 tells us that Satan veils our minds so that we are blinded. The blinding comes because the veil is in front of our eyes. But why in the world does Satan need to blind us if we are constitutionally blinded by our fallen condition? That's a big problem for the Calvinist because if we are already so blind that we can't see or desire truth, then why does Satan need to additionally blind us? So we'll look at that in several other passages to get a greater understanding. All of this is important because of where... Uh, where the text is going to go after we finish this reminder of our depravity. So as usual, there's a lot more to the text than what we see when we just read through it. We have to stop and really think. Paul is so uh, sophisticated and complex. But what we recognize as we look at all of this is that as unbelievers, and then as believers who still think like unbelievers, 
we've got some serious problems, and it's sin. Sin is this pro- problem that has to be dealt with, and if you're not looking at it, at human behavior and social problems from the vantage point of sin, then you're not living in the realm of reality, and you're never going to come up with uh, helpful solutions. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at these things uh, this morning, to reflect upon what your word says. It's not a complimentary look at us because we are uh, creatures that have been severely impaired by sin, separating us from the life of God, darkening our understanding uh, so that we do not see truth, we do not understand truth, but that the light of your word is so powerful that it overcomes that blindness, and that it is through your word that we come to understand a truth and we understand light. It is through your word that we come to recognize that you have called us through your word to an everlasting, uh, to an everlasting life in heaven. That Christ died for our sins, and it's just by trusting Him, believing on Him, that you then, as a consequence of that faith in Christ, you regenerate us, you make us alive in Him, raise us together with Him, and seat us together in the heavenlies. And for that, we are so grateful that we need to understand our new identity in Christ, for that becomes the basis for the challenge to walk, to no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. Pray that you would help those who have uh, never trusted Christ as Savior to understand this. You would enlighten their thinking so that they can understand the offer of salvation because that is the light that shines in the darkness. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.